When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. One guest this week, but an excellent one. Laura Rutledge is the host of NFL Live, host of SEC Nation. She is a reporter on Monday Night Football, the NFL Draft, seen her on the Pro Bowl. You're going to see her working the sidelines of the Rose Bowl. Um, Really one of the great, versatile people at ESPN. Um, Incredibly talented and really, really honest when it comes to answers. And... um, we get into a lot of topics from where she is professionally to uh, she's got a contract negotiation coming up to um, being very close to getting the Monday Night Countdown job. And so um, I think you're going to appreciate this. Uh, the uh, I've been talk- This is Laura's first time on this podcast, uh, but the couple of times I've talked to her, I- I've always come away uh, incredibly impressed. And one thing I can absolutely tell you is that having uh, written about ESPN for a long, long time, uh, this is someone really well-respected and most importantly, well-liked. I've never heard a single person at ESPN say a bad thing about Laura Rutledge. And quite frankly, at a place that sometimes can be like Game of Thrones, that's, um, that's, that's a pretty impressive legacy and resume. So Laura Rutledge coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. One quick note, though, before we get to Laura. Um, if your audio sounds a tick off, it's not you. As they say, it's me. Um, I've been dealing with some uh, jaw and ear issues this week. So um, my sound is probably a tick off. And so knock on wood, uh, that will improve with modern medicine. But um, but if I sound a little bit different, again, it's, uh, it's not your audio. It's on me. All right. Without uh, further ado, Laura Rutledge of ESPN. All right. As I said at the top... Um, if you watch ESPN, this person doesn't really need much of an introduction. I will give her one anyway. Laura Rutledge is the host of NFL Live. She's host of SEC Nation. You see, you will see her as a reporter on Monday Night Football, including for the upcoming Titans-Dolphins games. You see her on the draft. You see her on the Pro Bowl. Um, you will see her, in fact, for the college football playoffs. She can talk about that, one of those games as well. So it's someone who... Uh, has a lot of things happening at uh, the worldwide leader there in Bristol, Connecticut. And for the first time, I am pleased to be joined by Laura Rutledge. Welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. All right, Laura. So let's start here. It's a lot to get to. Um, so on May, yeah, our crack research staff won me. 
found out that on May 16th, 2017, you're named host of SEC Nation on the SEC Network. Flash forward more than six years later, and you now host one of the company's signature NFL shows. You're on Monday Night Football, and you have some high-profile assignments. How would you analyze where you are professionally today versus where you thought you might be professionally today? It's a great question because I try to not think about this a lot because I think I'm so focused in trying to get from one assignment to the next and and appreciating it, but maybe not fully appreciating it. And it's funny, even as you were saying that, I'm thinking, wow. And a fun fact, I, I actually keep that press release from the 2017 moment when I was told I would be the SEC Nation host and they announced it. I keep that uploaded on my phone at all times in my web browser, just as a reminder of where I've come from and the progress that's been made. And um, I'm just really thankful for all of it because to answer your question about <laughs> analyzing my the differences in what I'm doing now, it's obviously higher profile and yet I don't feel like anything's changed for me. I, I feel like I'm I'm working just as hard. I feel like I'm preparing the same way albeit a little bit different with two little kids. But um, it's just been really, I think, special for me too to be able to say that, yes, I've expanded my roles at ESPN, but I always stay true to some of those original roles. The SEC Network and SEC Nation was the first group that really took a chance on me and gave me a role like a hosting role for one of their flagship shows. And um, that's just meant so much to me. I, I can't overstate how much it means to me, how much it matters, and how much I enjoy those people. Just even all the way up to Greg Sankey, who has been so wonderful to me over all these years. And I, I don't even think people realize that Commissioner Sankey really cares about all of us who care about the SEC. And I'm friends with his wife, Kathy. And it's just, it's just a really special relationship that I could not be more grateful for as I sit here today with a few different jobs than I did in 2017. I mean, do I dare even get you like in hot water by asking you like who should have been the fourth team? Because it seems very obvious where your allegiances <laughs> might lie. Well, I think I already got myself in some hot water and I knew this was going to happen. And I try to I try to just not even do this, but I couldn't stand it on Sunday. I was admittedly in Athens where it seemed like it was so unlikely that Georgia was going to make it. But yet... I think we all still felt like, or at least those of us that maybe have some SEC ties, although I think even people who don't probably see this, that it felt ridiculous for Georgia to go all the way from number one and out of the top four after just a three-point loss to Alabama in the SEC championship game. After they had 29 straight wins, they're such a complete team. They were not healthy offensively. You can't make excuses, I get it, but... I just still felt like they were one of the four best teams. So I, I tweeted that out and I, I said they should make it. And I said it should have been Michigan, Texas, Alabama, and Georgia. And and I know Washington's great too. And I really like Washington, but I didn't have enough space for them. Florida State, I feel terrible for what's happened to them. And I, I feel awful for Jordan Travis, but they're not one of the four best teams without their quarterback. So now I'm probably going to rile everybody up all over again, but... <laughs> I was getting some really mean tweets and I knew I was asking for it, but that is my final answer. I, I still think Georgia is one of the four best teams. Yeah. So it's interesting. Like, I'm, I'm trust me, I'm moving off this in a second because like, this is going to become like uh, the end, my, my endless nightmare of, of, <laughs> of being in a sport that I've chosen not to, to intentionally be in. But um, like, you are absolutely factually correct. Like Georgia is one of the four best teams. You can't really argue against it in terms of, you know, NFL caliber talent, what they've done over the 
two years. But then, as you know, far better than me, it sort of gets into like, what is the playoff supposed to be, right? It's like, is it supposed to be the four best teams, the four most attractive teams for TV? Or is it supposed to be like sort of where one is to rank at a certain time, given who's won or lost? In some ways, this makes the sport like brilliant in terms of um, an endless conversation piece. And then in many ways, and then I'll let you go and then we'll, we'll get back into your career. Like a lot of this does, don't you think a lot of this does end next year though? Because um, it it, does. Because, this is just my take. Like it's so much harder to debate like who should be the 13th or 12th team in the playoff versus number four. You're right. And the other thing too about it is there are five power five conferences. There's only four spots. So somebody's right. getting left out. And it, exactly. it, it was really wild that up until this season, and there have been some debates, there have been some things that have happened that were controversial and maybe some decisions made that people didn't agree with, but it was never this dramatic. And we were even saying that on Selection Sunday as we're sitting there in Athens, it's never going to be like this again. It's never going to be a situation where you have a number one team in the penultimate college football playoff rankings that ends up dropping out as a result of a three-point loss purely because... They had, I guess they felt, and, and I get it, they felt like they had to put some of these other teams in there, um, especially when it comes to Washington, a team that had beat one of their previous darlings in Oregon, beat them twice. I mean, it, you can talk yourself in and out of so much of this. And my, my final point on it is I did the mock committee exercise. So I, I went to Grapevine, did the whole thing, went through the voting, voting in the threes. It makes things very peculiar. It is a system that is imperfect. Everybody would say that who's been through that, and even people who haven't would look at it that way. But I do, after doing that, I do understand why this goes the way that it does, which means it, it's always going to be debatable. And now we are at the end of that. It's kind of sad. And then also... I am screaming for a 12-team playoff. So I'm excited that never again, hopefully, will we feel like a team got completely snubbed in this. All right. I was going to – I would have asked you this later, but since it's sort of now it seems to be more in line with what we're talking about. You were born in Florida, correct? I was actually born in Atlanta, but spent a lot of time in Florida. Okay. Went to school in Florida. Yes. University of Florida. All right. So clearly, you are a Southerner. But now you live in Connecticut, right? So what has been the biggest adjustment for a Southerner to move up north? You know, yesterday it was snowing a little bit. And I'm sure Connecticut people were like, oh, this is no big deal. I almost said ain't no thing, which is really Southern of me. But <laughs> anyway, very um, I, I try to, you know, tone that down a little bit up here. But it, it is so cold. I That is the biggest adjustment it's something that I've gotten more used to, but I'm still not totally prepared for it. it it's pretty funny because my four-year-old Reese, you know, she knows a lot about the South. We visit our families there because both of our families, my husband, Josh, and I's families are still in Alabama and Georgia and South Carolina. And but but yet she has lived her life in the north. And I always find that to be weird. I don't know why, but it, it's a little bit weird. And and baby Jack too, it's gonna be the same for him. So I would say the cold though is the the by far the biggest adjustment. And maybe the second most um unfamiliar thing is that people up here don't really care to be super over the top nice. And that's okay. I'm not even judging that, but it's so different from the South where everyone's waving and smiling and saying hi. And I, when I first got up here, I was doing that. And then I thought, God, I think people think I'm weird. So I still do it sometimes, but I think I threw a few people off with that. Had to stop. That's interesting. So I can relate to two things there. One, um, my kids are born in the States. They now live in Canada and they're far more Canadian now than American, yeah. which is crazy to me, <laughs> right? And the second thing is people are incredibly friendly here 
in Toronto oh, versus where I was yeah. from New York where I was from New York. So I'm the one who feels like an asshole if I'm not being like over the top <laughs> friendly. So I, I I totally feel you there. Um, I ask this question a lot of hosts because I've had so many hosts on this um, podcast. And it's interesting because um, there's usually a through line almost between every single host I've ever interviewed and this question. We'll see if it turns out to be the same for you. What do you think is your most important function on NFL Live? Yeah, my most important function in all shows that I host is to make everybody around me look their best. And so do you think that there is a skill set? Uh, no, let me take that back. Not a skill set. Do you think it takes a certain kind of ego to allow that to be the case where you can, for lack of a better phrase, sort of subjugate your airtime or ego so that the people around you can get more of that? You basically have to be egoless. I think the best hosts are the ones without ego. And I, I do put myself in that category because truly I consider a successful show looking back on it and saying, I really didn't talk that much. They asked each other questions. I didn't have to interject. I let them do their thing. Meanwhile, I am sitting back there thinking constantly. I have multiple on-ramps I could take. I have D directions that I divert to based on something that somebody said. We keep it very loose and conversational for that reason. I'm not overly scripted. I write every word in every show that might be said, and then I say maybe a fraction of it. Those are the shows that I think are the most successful. And it is because everyone walks away saying, I can't believe what Dan Orlovsky said. I can't believe what Tim Tebow did. Oh, that was amazing. What Marcus Spears said and Ryan Clark and Mina Kimes. She's such a rock star. Those are the things that I say, okay, that means I did my job, if that's how everyone's talking about the show. So that is, generally speaking, through line, whether it's, you know, Ernie Johnson or Kurt Menefee or, you know, James Brown, whoever's ever been on this podcast uh, before. So now let me ask you sort of this question, because this is interesting and specific to you. You clearly are very knowledgeable about both the NFL and college football. Um, so do you feel like because you have other avenues, let's say if you go on Feinbaum or something like that, to give your opinion, does that help? Um, how do I say it? Does this does that help like alleviate any of the desire? Maybe if like you know you'd love to like have this take on this topic, but as the host, you're like you know what Dan and Mina or Dan and Ryan are really going at it. I got to just sit back and watch. Does that does it help you that that you have other avenues to express that? I think it does. I actually think it helps a little bit with credibility overall, too, because there are these examples of times when it is appropriate to give my opinion or when I'm being teed up in that way, whether it's Fine Bomb or another show, that then people can reference and say, oh, yeah, you know, she's got an opinion. She knows what she's talking about. And I, you, you do have to get comfortable with knowing that you are going to be the one that somebody might be able to say, well, she hasn't said anything, so maybe she doesn't know anything. And and that is at times, I think it's true for a lot of us, it is in the back of my head a little bit, but yet that is so minor in comparison to my ultimate goal, which is to prop everybody else up and to make them look good that I'm able to dismiss it. But I do try to take advantage of any time that I would give an opinion or um, even if it's on a podcast or a radio show or something like that. Those are my times to sort of unload my own knowledge and and let people know um, that I, I do have a lot of opinions and thoughts about all of this. The, the other thing too about that is there are many times on a show when I'll have a chance to say something and then somebody else says something additionally that that sent us another direction. And 
I think those split second decisions of, okay, I wanted to say that, but you just can't do it because it won't, it will be self-serving. It will not serve the show. Those are things that I, I do think I've gotten better at over time. And, and now that has truly become second nature. Yeah. This is why a host always has to listen to her analyst, Laura, or else you're going to yeah. be in trouble, right? Because you end up repeating. <laughs> exactly. So this this is interesting to me. And I, I'm, um, when you were coming on, I really wanted to ask you to sort of get your sense of this. You, Sam Ponder, Chris Thompson, Maria Taylor, Stacey Dales, Colleen Wolf. I'm, I'm going to leave out a lot of people, but people will get my understanding here. You're to be part of like the second generation of women to be in prominent NFL hosting roles. Like I would kind of put Susie Colbert maybe in the first generation, like maybe Hannah Storms hosted NFL shows back in the day that I should know off the top of my head. Um, and that's, you know, that that's, that's progress and that's good. The next evolution to me would be analysts. So you have Amy Trask, obviously you mentioned Mina Kimes, but not many others. From your perspective, do you think that changes in 10 years, five years, the way clearly there are now women in your position where once upon a time that was, you know, just Brent Musburger, you know what I'm saying, or Jim Nance or, yeah. or whomever? I hope it changes. And I do think it will. The one thing I would point out is a lot of times for anyone to feel like they can do something, they want to watch someone that they consider maybe similar to them or that they can relate to doing it first. And that's just human nature. And so I think that's why someone like Mina Kimes is so incredibly important to this landscape and to this space. And what she does shows other women that they can do it. And there, there's a lot of weight to carry with that. And I think she carries it so exceptionally well. I don't even know half the time how she does it and some of the things that she deals with. She amazes me. Um, but my only kind of pullback here is actually a compliment to Mina. It is so hard to be an analyst, especially as a woman. It's so much work. It is so difficult. It takes such a unique skill set. It takes a brain that is beyond most brains. And so I would just say you're not going to have a whole ton of Mina Kimes is coming out of the woodworks. It's just, she's so rare. She's so unique. But I do think because of her and because of the select other few, there are going to be more who start out younger even or earlier even in pursuing the analyst route as a woman. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, obviously, yeah. I mean, you know, there's already a disadvantage in many ways in that sport if you didn't play just because it's a complex mm -hmm. sport that, you know, that's different. That's where to me... I do see like someone like Amy Trask and women who ultimately yes. like are hired in the front. Let's just use the NFL, for example, hired in like the front offices of the NFL or maybe the coaching staffs. I do see a, a, a way where they can maybe if they are interested in television to to use their like um, business background as the entree to become analysts as opposed to um, – you know, obviously the traditional out like Ryan or Dan or Marcus, you know, they played. So that would be one I'd, I'd watch. But but your answer is um, your answer. It, it's interesting. And uh, and yeah, I mean, listen, Mina Khan is absolutely a unicorn in the business. There's no question about mm. that. She is. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. 
For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Let me ask you about the um, let me ask you about the sidelines because again, one of the interesting parts of your career is that you really have morphed into a lot of different positions. So you're doing Titans Dolphins with Chris Fowler, Lewis Riddick, Darren Olofsky, and you have now done a couple of these games before. Can you take my listeners through like um, do you, is the pre- how is the preparation different for when you're doing like a one off game versus trying to stay current in the NFL every week? It's very different, um, but I do think the two work together well. And by that, I mean that every single day I'm in it with the NFL, the content constantly, not just surface level, because on a daily show, especially NFL Live, we pride ourselves in going much deeper. And so for me, it's it's the next level beyond the next level beyond the next level on all of these teams. And um, then when I get the games, there's such a familiarity already there because we're already talking about them. It's second nature. We are having these conversations day in and day out. But what I then try to do is peel back more layers. So not only will I look at both two deeps for both the teams in the Dolphins and the Titans, but then I'll say, okay, how can I further this story? How can I add to it? What's an angle that hasn't been told? I, I have a unique background covering Tua Tungavailoa coming out of college because of all the injuries that he had and my closeness to the SEC and covering Alabama. I covered some of the wildest stories when it came to what was happening with him and know his family well as a result and um, was entrusted with a lot of medical information about him that you know has stayed with me and I think will be a piece of this game as we just tell his story back to prominence and being a guy that is considered a potential MVP candidate. It's been so much fun to watch after all the doubters of him. And then Will Levis, who's going to be the Titans quarterback, that's one of the reasons why, and you and I even talked about this back at the draft, why it's so important to me to have this thread throughout college football and the NFL. They're so intertwined. And knowing Will Levis back at Kentucky, speaking to his family, knowing his parents, his mom sharing concerns even in the lead up to the draft, and then what happened to him at the draft, now he's having success. It's just, it's such an amazing perspective to know every little thing about these guys and about what got them to their, to where they are. So that's just the quarterbacks, but that stretches to the entire team. And I think that's where the preparation is a little bit different. I become less of a um, tear upper for lack of a better way to put it and stats based and all that. And more of a storyteller when I'm on the sideline. You can tell me by the way, if this theory is uh, bogus, but my thought would be that um, you would have a, you would ha- you 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 might have a better chance of getting more stuff as a college football sideline reporter, particularly if you have do a lot of games in a specific conference, because there are there would be in theory less national people doing this than the NFL, where um, there are more sideline reporters just because of all the different networks that do the game, and also because I feel like the NFL may be more secretive when it comes to this stuff than college football. Now you can totally tell me I'm wrong because obviously Mm. I've never been a sideline reporter either for the NFL or college football. But if we just use it tangibly, like if you're doing Alabama LSU, do you feel like you can get more from those groups on a given assignment weekend than Titans uh, Dolphins? I do. Uh, And I think some of it's because of the, the way that the NFL games are 
done. And just a lot of it has to do with the parameters that are in place. You know, there are rules in place. We would we would maybe show an injury from a distance if it wasn't that severe. You know, obviously we want to protect these guys and make sure that we're never exploiting them in any way. But we can't report anything specific about the injury until we're told and until it's reported to the NFL and then we're giving the information. You know, it's it's this whole chain of communication that doesn't exist in college. You know, in college, it's about relationships. It's about, hey, this doctor, this team doctor trusts me. So he'll come up to me and say, this is what's going on. Here's how I would like it to be presented or I'm down on the sideline and I'm observing that the offensive line is talking about a cadence change, or maybe they're struggling with how they're snapping the football. They're practicing it on the sideline. These are things that in an NFL game, I would alert our crew. I would say, hey, this is going on. Maybe we get a camera on it and the guys in the booth can talk about it, or maybe I'll add a little bit there too. But I wouldn't necessarily do that report in the NFL. In college, I would almost 100% do that report. So I think that's maybe the best example of the differences there and and how there is a little bit more of a free-flowing, observational-type approach to college versus the NFL, which is a little bit more structured in how they want the information disseminated. That's interesting. Do you have Nick Saban's cell phone, Laura? I don't, but you know, it's so funny. I just did an interview with Nick Saban and Kirby Smart at the SEC Championship. We do a, a coaches show. It's really a unique situation to interview both of them together. And it's a longer form interview show. And Nick Saban, he's notorious for not texting anybody, but he admitted that he learned how to text. He said he's very simple. He called himself a simple texter with no punctuation, <laughs> but he had texted Kirby Smart something back and, and and Kirby was like shocked by it. He couldn't believe that he had received a text message from Coach Saban. <laughs> right, if, 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 an, if an SEC fan could have one cell phone between Kirby Smart or Paul Feinbaum, which should they choose? Oh, they should choose Paul Feinbaum's, but I, I say that with a caveat. Paul has this weird thing that he does. And I say that because everybody texts Paul. Probably not every single person's texting Kirby Smart, so you would just get more information out of Paul. But Paul does this thing that I find so odd. Anytime he gets a text, he immediately deletes it. He'll read it, and maybe he'll respond, but, but he deletes it. He wants it to be empty which I don't understand that. I don't delete anything. I keep all of it. So I don't know yeah, what's I think, going uh, on with that with Paul. But. Yeah, probably Feinbaum's former agent, Nick Khan, taught him that. It's all about secrecy. Right, exactly. He's, no so, he's so secret. Top secret information there from, from Feinbaum. Yeah, well, this is, you know, this is why he's the, he's the king of the South. <laughs> Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, Five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. couple more here. Um, many of your colleagues on set have gotten new contracts uh, recently, and that's... You know, when it comes to ESPN, that's a tangible way to acknowledge the success of a show. Your contract, I happen to know, is coming up next summer. Generally speaking, my advice to you would be like Shohei Otani and not answer any of these questions. In fact, I would at this point <laughs> basically hang the phone up. But No comment. I'm just kidding. <laughs> right. That said, let me ask you this in broad strokes. Uh, w- like, what are you anticipating with negotiations heading forward? And do you have some things that you would like to do? If you decide to to 
stay at ESPN and if ESPN decides that they would like you to stay? Yeah, I think for me, you know, one of the th- things that has become most important is just being on the biggest events, on the biggest games, hosting, reporting, doing whatever is asked, you know, um, which I do. And and it's already going on. And I enjoy being at those big events and, and being a part part of that and also being a daily presence. And so wherever that can happen, that's what's important to me. And, you know, as for how negotiations would go, I would just first say that I'm so happy for my teammates. It's been so cool watching NFL Live breed success amongst these people that I care so deeply about. And I I just, I truly love being a cheerleader of theirs and encouraging them and supporting them. And they all kind of lend themselves to different types of support and and I'll cater it specifically to the analyst, to the person and make sure that they know how valued they are. I think that's really important. Um, But I I have seen in my career at ESPN that Burke and Jimmy have taken care of me. And so I'm hopeful. And and I guess I I would just leave it at that. Um, You know, this, this place has meant a lot to me in the last few years. And I, it's crazy. I've been here since I was 25 and I'm 35 now. So it's almost 10 years. Um, it, it has gone by in seemingly a blink of an eye, and yet so much has happened in that time. Let me ask you one more about this. And again, you, you know, I, I recognize you, you have to be diplomatic. You should never be negotiating publicly, certainly on a low-budget podcast like this one. Um, <laughs> You're high-budget. What are you talking about? High-budget. Sorry. That's, I'm reading, misreading the script there, Laura. All right. So, <laughs> so, like, the reality is, like, when you have a successful show like NFL Live is, and, and Again, let's be relative. It's successful within its time slot. It's not drawing NFL numbers, et cetera, but it's a success in a day part where ESPN needs things to be successful. The reality is uh, people might get from that show, Laura, other opportunities. We're seeing Dan become much more prominent in game analyst. It would not be surprising mm-hmm. at all if like one day Dan becomes some full-time um, you know, game analyst. He said even on this podcast, yeah. he would love to be the, the number one NFL analyst in a network. Ryan Clark's talked about, in addition to television, like working in an NFL front office. So I don't know, tomorrow somebody calls Ryan Clark and offers him a GM job. I, I would think he, he would take it. I don't know Marcus well enough to know like if his desires are to be on television long-term or not. Um, maybe they are. Maybe he'd want to do something else. My point is that like success a lot of times leads to other opportunities And I wonder for you, because I know that you have been close to some significant jobs at ESPN, including Monday Night Countdown. Um, That's something that myself and others have reported. Like, how do you count? Let me ask this. How do you sort of calculate the idea of leaving a show that you love with friends you clearly love, but you might have to leave it, let's say, if the opportunities are bigger? How how do you look at something like that? Well, you know, it's funny because... um you know, I did get really close to Monday Night Countdown. And I I think about that. I mean, geez, I'd be lying if I didn't say I thought about that every day and it, it still stings for me, honestly. I mean, that's just the, that's just the truth of it. And uh, sometimes it's in my face because I still have associations with Monday Night Football and things that I do. And, um, you know, the whole part of that was that I wanted to never leave NFL live, even if my role expanded. And I think there's a a bit of a pattern there with me. Like you look back, even where we started our conversation today on SEC Nation, there have definitely been years where people have said, well, get off of that. You know, you should just be doing this, that, and the other instead. You, you don't need to still be doing that. And I am proud of myself for saying, 
no, I'm sticking with that. That matters to me. To me, That is something that I enjoy. That's something that's really special to me. And that's how I feel about NFL Live. And so you're right there. I, I guess there could be some opportunity that I'm not seeing right now that could happen where it would just not make sense to continue on. But I think one thing that might be unique about me is I'm not afraid of the work. I enjoy it. It's something that I really look forward to every day is, is being with my friends on the show. And so I would do everything possible to hold on to it. And I think, you know, when you, when you strike amazing chemistry, like I think we have on NFL live, you just don't want to give up on that. You want to take that other places, you know, you want that to get a bigger spotlight and, and maybe that's in the cards too. You never know. You know, I, I, I keep an open mind about all of that, but I do think that, you know, looking back on just even these last few months and um, seeing how everything's happened and and some of the things that I've been faced with, you know, there's been a good deal of disappointment, which everybody deals with, right? That's just part of life. It's part of being in a career. It's it's not something that I'm going to sit here and say, oh, woe is me. But what I think has worked for me is finding opportunity in that disappointment. It's an opportunity to say, okay, there must be something that I need to be doing better. What is that? How can I get better? How can I find joy in what I'm doing? How can I be an even better teammate, an even better leader of these people that that really I do care about so much? And um, how can I spend more time with our staff? How can I leave no doubt the next time that an opportunity comes up that it that it has to be mine? And I think that's something where, you know, just kind of grappling with what opportunities would be available and what would be available for the others on the show that, you know, we do every day together. That's going to be my mindset going forward. And and it's helped a lot when it comes to um, finding a lot of the positives this season. All right. I, forgive me for playing like amateur psychologist here, but let me just ask you this. You, <laughs> I'm correct that like when you were younger, you were trained to be uh formally in ballet, right? Very serious yes. about this? Very serious okay. ballet dancer, yes. So I wonder if from what you just said in terms of sort of trying to find improvement everywhere and sort of using this to facilitate that, um, isn't sort of in many ways like it's almost impossible to find perfection in ballet? That's kind of part yes. of like... So I wonder if, if there is a connection there and that like maybe from your earliest training in that stuff that you're, you've, you've, you learn the value or the sort of the part of the process to at least attempt to do this, even if like ultimately the end result is impossible. I'm, I'm, I, I didn't ask that You're question so well, but you know right. what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> You're so right. Um, I have self uh, psycho analyzed all of this and, and um, you know, even before my ballet days, I, I played a lot of instruments and I, my mom tells a story about even a violin recital that I had when I was probably 10, maybe a little bit younger and I didn't, I didn't think I did well. And I went back, I, I shared a, um, I shared a bunk bed with my brother. So I was on the top bunk, they were on the bottom bunk. And I went into my top bunk in our shared room and just cried and cried and cried about how bad I had done and just beating myself up. And, you know, this is at a really young age. <laughs> and, and my mom, you know, my parents were like, oh my goodness, what, what are we going to do with this kid? But that has been always a common thread through everything that I've done. And, and I think what, what I now look at is that while yes, you know, I still feel those pangs of disappointment about things like this and and missing out on opportunities I thought I was working really hard for. Um, but now I've found ways to turn it into something good. And, you know, this is not some sort of like happy-go-lucky thing. Believe me, there are many days that are not as easy and that um do sort of slap me in the face. But 
I have found overall ways to say, you know what, I'm going to use this. And at some point, this is all going to make sense, you know, and I'm going to look back and say, all right, this happened this way, this door closed this way because of this reason. And it becomes apparent um, just when you least expect it. At least that has happened to me many times so far in my career, which I I still consider to be relatively young, but I also realize I, I think I've been doing this for kind of a while now, which is kind of crazy to think about. No, I mean, you're still, I mean, professionally, you're incredibly young. (laughs) I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. (laughs) Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The last one for me is, you know, one of the things, and, and I'm very serious here to the audience, you know, obviously I've written and covered ESPN for a long time, quite frankly, too long. Um, uh, yeah. It's very blunt. Um, that the uh, I'm not joking when I say it, that it's almost over. Uh, I think uh, it's good to, I think everybody's got a writing shelf life, to be quite frankly honest. Um, but one of the things about you, and I have talked to people who have worked with you, I've talked to your bosses, et cetera. Um, you really are universally respected and liked. No one... I've never heard anybody like call you political. I've never heard anybody call you an asshole. I'm just going to, you know, we were allowed to curse on this podcast. And so I wonder for you, I mean, I don't know you personally, obviously, but like, if nothing else, it seems like you have made an attempt to um, forge important working relationships and that um, ESPN, which can be a very many at times political Game of Thrones place, you have, Mm. I don't know, it seems like to me you have found a way to... um, to to accelerate there and to do well there, but not necessarily to do well there at the expense of others. Um, and I'll, I'll just leave that open to you to answer however you wish to answer. That means a lot to me that you would say that. It really does. Um, I think sometimes there are people that say, oh, well, who cares if people like you? And, and I care. I really do. Um, and I, I don't mean that in a way of you know, some sort of like self-important way. I, I'm not trying to get likes on social media or something, but I want people to feel like I care about them. I want people to know that I think they're valuable and that they matter. Um, and I like making people feel important. I, I do. It's it's something that I really enjoy. Like if there's if if I come home, you know, feeling good about my day, it's because I had a really meaningful conversation with one of our camera operators or um, you know somebody at work. I, I just actually right before we started talking, I was spending some time with Erin Dolan, who's our um, betting analyst here, and is a younger woman, and you know just kind of talking through how things are going for her. And it, that conversation meant a lot to me. And I think what I found is that. For me, what I care most about right now, and and this may be true even going forward, is is the mentorship part of this and um, the relationships. It matters to me a lot. I, I I do believe that you know looking back on people's careers, it's like the only thing I want people to say about me is that you know I was nice, <laughs> a nice person, and and um and maybe that's not the way that you know you're supposed to approach this. And and I realize I leave myself maybe vulnerable at times. Um, cause you know, if people are mean, sometimes that hits me a little bit harder, 
But I have found a lot of power in kindness and a lot of power in being classy and being the bigger person and um, finding ways to sort of face all this with that. And so it's a credit to my parents, probably first and foremost. They're wonderful people who have always set a really great example for me. But um, it's also, I think, a credit to the people who have been so willingly receiving of whatever I would give to them and um, not seeing it in any other way other than just that, oh, you know what? She really does want to help me or, or spend time with me. Laura Rutledge is the host of NFL Live as well as SEC Nation. You'll see her on Monday Night Football coming up, as we mentioned earlier in this podcast. But again, a lot of other... Uh, oh, you know, I should before we get out of here, what's the... Uh, I'm sorry, as, as I was closing up with this fancy uh, exit, I forgot to ask this. Uh, you're doing one of the semifinal games for college football. What, I am. Doing? I'm doing the yeah. Rose Bowl. I, I cannot believe this. I'm doing the Rose Bowl. I keep thinking about it and getting chills because it is actually really a bucket list item for me. I, I don't have you know, many bucket list items because I try not to make it too big and, and get myself thinking about that. But this is really one that I, I've always wanted to go to this game even and to know that um, I'll be on the sideline for it is truly remarkable. So I cannot wait. Michigan, I mean, Alabama. That, it's going to be fun. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, that, I mean, Michigan, Alabama, that's, that is a historic, not to mention just an interesting matchup this year. I mean, that's a historic yes. matchup of two <laughs> programs at a historic building. So that's a very cool assignment. All right, so there you go. Breaking news, Laura. will be on the sideline for that. <laughs> um, again, catch her on all her shows. Um, and I wasn't bullshitting her. I'm not bullshitting the audience. I have talked to many, many people at ESPN for many, many years, and I have never heard one person say shit about Laura Rutledge. That, that is, trust me when I tell you in television, that is a very rare thing. Laura, um, thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast and continued success. I appreciate you so much. And I just want to make one comment. You mentioned that, you know, your time is running out as a writer. I don't think that's true at all, ever, about any writer, because writing is such a beautiful ability and you do it so well. And you're a great podcaster. So I don't want to hear, um, if you want to hang it up, that's just, you know, because you want to do something else in life. I get that. But your talents and your skill set is premier. Thank you for the pep talk, Laura. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe more my time of writing about sports <laughs> media. Is up. But yes. Um, right, you're going to write something else. I like that, okay? I will yeah, always I be a fan. To, I, need, I need to do something that actually helps human beings, Laura. But you're very kind um, to say that. <laughs> I love Laura it. Laura Rutledge, everyone. Okay, back in the studio. My thanks to Laura Rutledge. Uh, not surprisingly, she was excellent. And, uh, and I really appreciate her time. Head to the archives if you like this kind of stuff. Uh, right before Laura, another excellent host inside the NBA host. Ernie Johnson was a guest on this podcast. We've had a couple of uh, conversations uh, viewership-wise, game day versus big noon kickoff. Uh, Austin Carp and John Lewis were on. Randy Scott, uh, a guest on November 27th, talking about going public uh, with mental health struggles. Really appreciate his honesty and him coming on. Ted Robinson was on earlier this month. Joe Buck, uh, again, uh, if you like this, uh, please uh, leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That's how this podcast continues. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Thank you to everybody at Odyssey for their support, and thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.